Jerry Morale is really looking forward to next week. He said it's going to be the high point of his year. <laughs> He's a dad. He can make jokes like that. So this series, as was mentioned, we're going through the summer. We're looking at cultural, specifically in this You Asked For It series, we're looking at cultural issues and a biblical or a Christian response to them because the reality, as we know, is, is that the culture inside these walls is very different than the culture outside these walls. Uh, the Canadian society and Canadian culture, North American culture, um, fundamentally looks at the world through a different lens than we do. They have a different view on suffering. They have a different view on life. They have a different view on uh, uh, ethics. They have a different view on behavior. And uh, so when these things come up, um, whether we're dealing with depression, whether we're dealing with uh, how retirement or how we age or treat the elderly or we're dealing with end-of-life issues or legal issues, as we'll get into next week and in August, we have to look at these things and understand that we have to come at them from a Christian perspective, that the, the Bible and God has given us the truth, a way to look at the universe and look at himself and look at ourselves and understand what is really going on, and that if we look through these cultural issues through that lens, it tells us as Christians how we are to react and how we should respond. And so one of those things that's happened uh, is this idea of um, medical assistance in dying is now a law in Canada, uh, or assisted suicide. And I'll just describe the law so that you know what we're talking about this morning and understand what it is that we're responding to. And so on May 10th of this year, um, this medical assistance in dying law amendment was made, and it came into force, and uh, it addresses... Uh, areas relevant to medical assistance in dying that fall under provincial jurisdiction. And the legislation provides greater clarity and legal protection for health care providers, including institutions and clinicians, as well as patients navigating medical assistance in dying. That's the purpose of the law. And specifically, to give you some details so you know what we're talking about, to be eligible for medical assistance in dying, the patient must be 18 years of old age of, or older, be capable of making health care decisions, uh, have a grievous and irremedi irremediable uh, medical condition, uh, which means the patient has a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. The patient is in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capabilities. The patient is enduring physical or psychological suffering caused by the medical condition or the state of decline that is intolerable to the person, and the patient's natural death has become reasonably foreseeable. They have to be making a voluntary request. They must pro provide informed consent to medical assistance in dying after having been informed of the means that are available to relieve their suffering, including palliative care. And I'll just add, there's also a two doctors have to approve this, and there's a 10-day waiting period normally. So this is the law, okay, just so that we're all clear of what it is that we're addressing. This is now the law in Canada. You can request to be killed uh, by uh, the medical system. Let me just open up in a word of prayer before I start. Father God, we just come to you seeking uh, your wisdom and also your compassion that we should know as followers of you and your son and filled by your Holy Spirit, how we respond to our culture in this issue. Um, this is right on our doorstep. This is prevalent. It's prevalent in our families. This isn't even just a cultural issue, Lord. This is real in our lives. I, I know there's people sitting here uh, that have confronted this and are dealing with it. And so uh, this is not just a theoretical paper or abstract thesis. This is real life. 
And so, Lord, we, we turn to you for your assistance and for your wisdom, for your compassion, and uh, to guide us and to see how your, your word is living and relevant in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first of all, I just want to establish that the idea of laws are good. Okay, So we like laws. Governance by law is a good idea. We're not anarchists, okay? God has given us law, and he's given us governance for the preservation of mankind. And, and the necessity of law, it's interesting that the fact that we need laws um, actually is one of the clear ways that we can see that mankind is fallen, that we are unable to naturally do what is good. And on the whole, we require evil to be restrained until such a time as we can be rescued and redeemed from our own rebellion and self-harm. And so the good news of, of God's whole redemptive plan for mankind and the good news of the gospel actually lies underneath the foundation of all of this discussion about why we have laws and why we need laws. But it's good that we have a law about assisted suicide. It's it's an important part of our life. These end-of-life issues are critically important, and we need moral guidance and regulation in those areas. And so the answer to this legislation is not to have any law at all, because that would be worse. But the answer to no law is also not always a hasty or an ignorant law. And we need to seriously ask ourselves, as we are this morning, is this particular law a good law? Is it properly thought out? Is it morally sound? Is the research complete? Does the law make the right assumptions? Will it influence society in the right direction? Is it well written? If we could have a law governing how we medically demonstrate compassion at the end of life, would this law meet that criteria? As Christians, although we can see the intent of compassion that that lies behind this law, There's troubling issues about the valuation of human life. There's troubling issues about uh, the evaluation or the elevation of individual choice over moral principles. And there's an inability here to address the root cause of despair that is really gripping most of these end-of-life situations. And so there's a danger here. And the danger in the culture, I think, if we could just sort of step back, we would realize that this new made legislation, medical assistance in dying, if we were talking about society as, as, as if it was a patient, I would say that, that this legislation or assisted suicide is, is actually just the presenting symptom of a deeper illness. The, the root illness that we're, is that we're steadily sliding from a culture of life into a culture of death. And there's a danger in sliding into a culture of death. And that phrase, a culture of death, was actually coined by Pope John Paul. In April of 1995, he wrote in Evangelium Vitae, in which he makes the argument that modern Western society is diligently working towards normalizing things like abortion and suicide and making them about individual choice rather than about morality. And actions that were once unanimously and historically across multiple cultures considered criminal or rejected by common moral sense are gradually becoming socially acceptable in this new culture of death. He says, in this way, a kind of conspiracy against life is unleashed. And later, he called this state of affairs a totalitarian democracy, a situation where essentially the tide of cultural opinion and the elevation of individual choice basically 
gets hold of the apparatus of government and legislation and enforces opinion as law upon the democracy, overriding individual freedoms. And so in the case of this law, in the case of medical assistance in dying, in which a doctor or nurse practitioner administers a fatal injection, moral theology professor John Berkman writes, it is telling that the Supreme Court of Canada avoided the language of assisted suicide or euthanasia and instead chose the euphemism physician-assisted dying. But dying is not killing. All of us will die, but God willing, none of us will be killed. And I would suggest that one is wise to be suspicious when very smart people start to refer to killing as dying. And so words are important. And the way the culture, the lens in which we view things is important. Very important to us as a society. Lawyer Kathleen Caverney says, The law in our society is a moral teacher. It affects how we think and how we act. And I'll give you a very trivial example of this. In, in Toronto, they passed a bylaw that said that all plastic bags at grocery stores will now cost five cents. This is the law. And because they passed that law, then everybody starts carrying their reusable bags to the grocery store. And every time we carry our reusable bags to the grocery store, we start to think differently about the environment and about waste and about how we fit into the ecosystem. Because of that law that a plastic bag costs five cents, it becomes a moral teacher to society. Laws change cultural practices. Laws influence the way we think about the world, for good or bad. That's a good example. So we have to understand that this new legal view, that the value of a life is determined by individual choice and not by moral principle, will change our society. This will start to change the way we think about death as a culture. It'll change the way each of us think about our own lives and the lives of others, more than we might imagine. And so as Christians, we have to be aware that these forces are at work in our culture and they have significant implications, and not only for Christians. We have to understand this too. This isn't just meaningful for us. The social forces that are at work today that I've sort of touched on are in some respects kind of a rising river, and we've all felt this, that it seems like the, the change going on in our culture and the direction in which our culture is headed feels like a river rising in a flood. And if there is a dangerous waterfall somewhere downstream, all of society goes over that waterfall together, not just Christians. So this is not just a church issue. It's not just a religious issue. It's about how we as society view ourselves and view life. And so there's an infectious danger in a culture of death as it permeates our language, as it infiltrates our laws, as it, as it affects our learning. It's a conflict of principles that's unavoidable when a culture of death encounters a culture of life. And I'll just give you one illustration of this. It's illustrated in 2015 when a mother in British Columbia discovered a family picture. It was a picture of their a Down syndrome child being used without permission by a biochemical company who's advertising prenatal genetic screening, a screening that is meant for parents who want to abort children like hers. And it was her picture, her, her child's picture on the, on the advertisement used without permission. And so a culture of death here impacts and, and meets a culture of life head on. 
And this mother told reporters, my daughter is beautiful, and she deserves to be celebrated. It broke my heart. While my girl courageously fights for her life, this company questions whether she has a life worth living. Okay, so this is a culture of death that meets a culture of life, and there will be conflict because the way we view the world is fundamentally different in these two different cultures. And so what is our biblical response then? What is the biblical response to an increasingly culture of death? It's sanctity of life. While our culture says that we are self-made and we are self-directed and we are self-satisfying and we are ultimately able to be self-destroying, Scripture tells us that we are God-made in God's image. We are God-directed. We are God-satisfying for his glory and for our greatest joy. And because of this divine reality in every single human life, we cannot treat human life as if it's simply an individual choice. And we get this from Scripture. We understand this as Christians because this is how God tells us we are made. We're made in the image of God, and every life is valuable because it is in the image of God. And and a lot of you know this, but I'll just touch on the Scriptures. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that we may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We're not just animals. We have more than a biological view of life. We have the divine imprint in us that we are made in God's image and have a soul and an eternity in in store for us with God if we choose to follow him. And so animals are driven by instinct, right? And animals are great. I get it that you love your dog, okay? You know, Fido is awesome. And uh, I know that some of you probably think that Fido is smarter and better than a lot of people that you know. Right? So, you know, we understand that animals, you know, God gave us animals and they are great companions, and, uh, but we have dominion over animals and animals act by instinct, okay? Animals are not self-aware and they're not aware that they're aware and, and they can't act in ways apart from instinct. We can train them and we can have them act in ways that seem apart from instinct, but at the end of the day, Fido wants a treat, right? Fido wants some reward or he doesn't want a smack on the snout, one or the other. And so they act by instinct. And and humans are different in that we're aware that we're aware. And even though we might act by instinct, there's another awareness, there's a consciousness that prevents us from acting in that way. And so we just understand that we, we don't have a biological view of nature. We have an understanding that there is a conscience and a spiritual and a God image view of who we are as humans because of how God made us. And so, and that isn't just at the high level of humanity in general either. I want you to understand, but it means you personally are made specially in the image of God. God knew you before the foundation of the world. And he was personally and intimately involved in forming you for who you are and to accomplish specific purposes and have specific experiences in your life. And I'll just give you Psalm 139 as homework to go and read this afternoon. Go read Psalm 139 and understand how within the biology of you being formed in your mother's womb, how God was intimately involved in the biology that formed you so that you would be you. And then in Genesis, God goes on to explain the importance of man being made in his image is relevant. It pertains to human life. For instance, when when Cain 
kills Abel, he says, Cain, where's your brother? His blood is crying out from the ground. And then God exiles Cain because of his action towards Abel, because Abel, like all humanity, was made in God's image. And then in Genesis 9, he says, from his from fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God is making the connection for us. The fact that we're made in the image of God means something about the preservation and the sanctity of our life. And you say, okay, that's murder. I get it. You know, Of course we're not supposed to kill people and, and we don't kill people who don't want to be killed. But, but what about when there's pain? What about when there's suffering? What about when they ask us to be killed? What, what, do we do? what does Scripture have to say about that? What, what do we do there? What if, what if I'm ordered by the government to alleviate the suffering of a person for merciful reasons? What about that? Well, I'm not going to go into the whole text here this morning, but just if you were to go to 2 Samuel 1, the situation is that, that Jonathan and Saul, this is when Saul was king, were fighting the Amalekites and they were on the battlefield and they were injured. And the, the battle is over and David's back home and they're wondering, you know, they know that they've been killed but they don't know the details. And a man comes up to David and he says to him that, that he was on the battlefield with Saul. And the people fled the battle and all these people that were fallen and dead, and, and Saul and his son Jonathan were also, were also dead. But he said, I saw him. I, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me and answered. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. And so I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And David weeps, and they mourn. And in the end, David calls this man accountable to execute him for taking Saul's life. So Scripture speaks to this. Now, the Old Testament is descriptive. It's not always prescriptive. But consider what is going on here. In the recount of Saul's death, this is a patient who is terminally ill. He has fallen. There is no reasonable hope of recovery. He was in extreme pain and faced with the prospect of more suffering. The patient requested that someone actively put him to death to help him die. And this was also a command of the governing authority. This was King Saul telling someone to kill him. But even in this situation, David, who is an agent of God, like Samuel, like Nathan, David, as an agent of God in the life of Israel, holds the messenger morally accountable for the death of Saul. And so there is a sanctity of life. Even in suffering, even in extreme cases, we do not take the stance that life is something that we can simply take, regardless of the circumstances. God values human life even in suffering, and so every life is valuable even in illness and suffering. Over the last two weeks, we've addressed the issue of depression and of growing old, and we've looked at a number of scriptures that demonstrate God's compassion for those that are suffering. And understand that valuing of life even in suffering is not because of a lack of compassion on God's part. It's not like God's saying, oh, I've just told you you can't take a life and I don't care if you're suffering. No, God is compassionate in our suffering. This idea of the sanctity of life is not because God is cold-hearted to those that are in pain. It's helpful for you maybe to go back and listen to those messages again for those verses, but I'll just give you one more 
that's easy for us to remember, that, that I, pull out of my, I pull out of my memory all the time when I'm in these situations, when I need to remember just, just one verse that reminds me of what this, all of Scripture tells us about God and His compassion and for those that are suffering, even those that are falling. Matthew 10, 29-31, I'm sure most of you know it, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So with that simple illustration, Jesus just says, look, God knows you. He knows the hairs on your head. He is there beside every sparrow that falls. And aren't you worth so much more than many sparrows? God places a high value on companionship and presence in our suffering and compassion towards those who are falling. And so we ask the question then, if this is what Scripture says, if this is the mind of God on this issue, if this, if this medical assistance in dying law is not the answer, how would we rewrite it? Or maybe closer to our own lives, what do we now as Christians living in this culture that has this law and has this outlook on life and death as individual choice rather than moral reality, how do we live our lives as a Christian response towards those who are incurably ill? How do we live our lives and act towards those who are suffering and are facing the approaching despair? What are we to do? Well, the Christian response has to deal with the very real conflict between compassion and suffering. First of all, we have to realize as Christians in dealing with this in our culture that we can't enforce morality on our society. Okay, God has given us governance, but God has also given people free will and the freedom to choose. And the culture will regularly choose death and sin over life and freedom in Christ. And so that means that as Christians, in this environment, in this culture, we absolutely are meant to be salt and light in the world. We are meant to be salt and light as a community of life as opposed to a culture of death. And so we can speak out, we can vote, we can campaign, we can write letters, we can talk to people, take them out for coffee, visit with them, give counsel to family members. We can do everything that is right and legal to protect people from making bad choices with bad information. But in the end, people operating outside of Scripture won't be forced to abide by Scripture. And we see this even in the life of the Apostle Paul and in specific instruction in 1 Corinthians 5 when dealing with immorality within the church. Paul says, when I told you not to judge, I wasn't talking about judging the world. I was talking about judging yourself. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Isn't it those in the churches we are to judge? Paul understood that he lived in something that was called from a governance perspective or a cultural perspective what was later on called principled pluralism. And we saw this in his prayer, that, that we were to pray for our governments. We saw this in his speaking to the people uh, in the Agora, in, in, the various, in the marketplaces when he spoke. Paul understood that he lived in a pagan culture, but that Christians were meant to live out principled lives within that pluralism that was around them. We can't wring our hands too much that Canada is behaving badly. The Apostle Paul lived under Nero and Caligula as Roman emperors, okay? And so when our government goes sideways, we cannot get too fearful or anxious about that. Paul lived with far worse governance than we had. But we are called to be salt and light within the midst of that. But closer to home, 
You know, beyond the bigger sort of theoretical picture of how we live within culture, closer to home we have the reality of Christian medical care workers who have to deal with this law, right? What does this mean for them? As it stands now, the legislation makes room for conscientious objection that, that, that a medical care worker or a doctor and nurse practitioner does not have to participate in this. They can recommend on. And that's good. At least we're not forced to take another person's life against our will. But speaking to the, to the medical care professionals, speaking to the nurses, to the doctors who are believers, your role is so pivotal here in being salt and light in this situation and ministering and doing ministry in this situation. Right? You are at the front lines in this particular area of suffering and in this particular area of despair and loss of hope. You know, in the same way that the pregnancy care center and, and, and are, are dealing with things at the front lines of bringing hope into possible situations of abortion, a whole other topic in terms of the culture of death. There are people amongst us who are ministering on the front lines of this. And so healthcare workers have to deal with this every day. And so as believers, we have to support them and encourage them. The gospel-centered care of our healthcare workers is critical when dealing with these end-of-life situations. But we still need to address very difficult cases, right? Where, where, where we find God's high value of human life coming into apparent conflict with God's also high demand for compassion. Right? This is the situation that this law really gets down to. That there are situations where, yeah, we value human life really highly, but this person is suffering and we also value compassion very highly. And so what do we do in these extreme cases? And most of them, I will put forth, are extreme cases. They are not the norm. And in these extreme cases, it is not easy to simply apply a blanket moral or biblical principle. You can't just say, take this verse and call me in the morning because there is real suffering going on here. And there's a real need for compassion and care. But I'll just step back and I'll first of all say that we don't base a broad principle on a marginal case. And so we don't set a general, for instance, abortion law based on the most extreme rare case where abortion might be necessary and apply it as a general principle for abortion everywhere. Because that is not fair to those unborn who are not in that situation. And likewise, in this end-of-life situation, we should not base a law on assisted suicide only on the example of the most extreme or complicated case. But where values compete and where the situation is extreme, then unique decisions can be made for those cases. And for us as Christians, grace and mercy abound. Compassion abounds. And so for us as family members, for you who have family members, for you who are facing this, show mercy, pray for wisdom, seek counsel, hope in God, and don't constrain other believers' consciousnesses when it comes into this. I'm honestly telling you, in the extreme cases, there are no easy answers. But as Christians, we always make decisions through the lens of Scripture and the Gospel. And we act from a basis of sanctity of life and God's sovereignty. We don't act and make laws and make decisions on a basis of culture of death and our independence. We do not accept hopelessness or uselessness of any life. And we know that each person has an opportunity to live and die to the glory of God. The cross tells us that suffering will be part of our life. But our suffering is for a purpose. God will not waste a single day of your suffering. 
The cross tells us that God joined us in our suffering and has a plan for it. And so the question is whether this law actually addresses the root issue of human need for value and love at the end of their life, or whether it simply gives in to the culture of despair that says suffering is unwanted and there is no point in life if it's not on our own terms. And some of the secular research behind this calls into question those assumptions that are behind the law, that really suffering just isn't worth it, and if I can't live on my terms, I want to end it. Harvey Chachanov He's a leading Canadian researcher on the end-of-life care, and he's empirically demonstrated that among the terminally ill, the desire to be killed is typically fleeting and varying from day to day. Furthermore, if the terminally ill who request euthanasia have their particular fears and symptoms addressed, their desire to be killed greatly declines. I just want to bring scripture and research together here. What, what scripture teaches us about compassion and what this research verifies to me is that people, even in suffering, in terminal illness, do not really want to die. Death is not the answer they really want. It is the only answer that our society has through marginalization and cultural influence offered to them suicide as the only alternative. Self-destruction or suicide are held out by our culture as an alternative gospel. They basically say, the good news for you is that you can just end yourself. That's the hope that you can have in your terminal illness, is that it can all be over tomorrow. But that is not the good news. It's not even the good news the terminally ill want to hear. It's just a last gasp of despair. And what do these people really desire? What do we know from Scripture? What does this research show? According to scripture, according to research, I think we could summarize it with one word. They want hope. They're looking for hope. If their fears could be addressed and their symptoms alleviated, then their desire to die drops off dramatically. And who has better hope to offer than us? The church and Christians are uniquely positioned to offer these patients the real good news, the real gospel of hope. That is the good news that they are worth far more than two sparrows. They are valued and they need not face their suffering alone. That there is companionship for them in their illness. That they need not fear because God desires that they be part of a family of love that is also a community of life. That their suffering is not futile. That they are objects of God's compassion through his people. And that their lives still have purpose and companionship. That is the hope that the church can hold out. That's the hope that scripture holds out. And so if that's our Christian response, then how does that influence our Christian practice? What do we hold out as an alternative to these people? How does it shape how we behave as Christians? This is the biblical call to us as Christians in the face of a culture of death. We have to hold out to them the opportunity to become part of a community of life. If we know that except in the most extreme cases pain can be managed and that the real enemy of the terminally ill is actually fear and despair, then what do we do to offer them the hope that we have in Christ? I'll put it this way. When it comes to the suffering at the end of life, it means for us as Christians, it means for you and for me and especially those who are particularly gifted in this area, it means that we are all in. It means that we are going to engage. It means that we have to be personally and compassionately involved. We have to rally around these people facing this despair and demonstrate the love that God has for them. We can't, as a church community, simply be a community that says, 
Assisted suicide is wrong. Or abortion is murder. We need to say those things, but we can't only say those things. We also, the church must also be a community that lives out a countercultural alternative answer and says, those things are not your hope, but we do have the hope. And we will be there at your bedside. And we will come into your family. And we will welcome you into ours. And we will show you the love that God has for you and the purpose of your life. And that it is not futility and despair, but there is eternal hope for you. So the church has to not simply say, no, don't do that. We have to offer the answer of how we then live a countercultural community of life. And so that means we live out the answer. We live out as a community that rejoices in all life, from the womb to the tomb. We, we support the pregnancy care center. We adopt. We are a people that foster. We are a people that care for the unborn and for the single moms. And we nurse people and we visit and we encourage and we bring hope to the disabled and to the dying. We have nursing homes and hospitals and palliative care suites here in Halliburton that need to see the church active in this ministry. Because if we simply say that your suffering is bad, but you're not allowed to take your life, or it's wrong for you to end your own life, but then we're not there by the bedside offering the alternative, then we have no message the world wants to hear. As a church, as a community, our answer to a culture of death is a community of life in which we are all in, we are participating, we are bringing the hope of the gospel, and we're bringing the compassion and the companionship of God in ourselves. God is active and we have to be active in in ministering to the fears and doubts of those near death. In Psalm 116, the psalmist is facing this very situation and he calls out to God in his prayer and he says, The cords of death entangle me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. It's at the end of his life. And then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. And the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. This is the hope that we hold out to those who are in despair because of fear or because of symptoms that they're undergoing. And the culture has no other answer to them except you can die tomorrow. The church has another answer. You can live today. You can live for eternity. And there is hope. And there is companionship. And there is compassion in your suffering. It's not without purpose. God knows our fears and he knows our doubts and he knows it can be crushing, but in the valley of death, God will be near. And we have the testimony of those Christians around us who have been in this situation to tell us that this is true. And I've got the time, so I'll just finish on this. First of all, in Scripture, we see that the Apostle Paul faced this very situation. Like you read in 2 Corinthians about the suffering in the Apostle Paul's life, right? It was beatings and robberies and imprisonments, and he was in prison basically facing death, waiting for Nero to decide what was going to happen to him. But he says in Philippians, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. So first of all, he says, even amidst all my suffering, I'm still doing good ministry for the church. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Here's Paul, a faithful minister in God's kingdom, saying, man, I just want to die and go to my reward. But I know that if I stay, there is fruit for the kingdom in my staying, even in my suffering. But closer to home amongst our own people, A lot of you will remember Kirk Bilgetina. 
Kirk was amazing. And I got to talk to her a lot while she was struggling with her cancer and, and her tumor and near the end of her life. And, and what a godly woman. But she faced this exact struggle because Kirk was suffering and it was painful and it was a slow decline to what seemed to be an inevitable death. And she was struggling not to commit medically assisted suicide, but she was struggling with whether she should even pray for healing. Because we offered as elders, we said, you know, we'll come, we'll pray for you. And she's like, I don't, I don't know if I really want to be healed. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I want you to come and pray for me because cause, cause I'm suffering and, and Jesus is right there so close. And so she had to make that decision about what she was going to do with her life. And she took days to think about it and pray about it. And then Kirk came back to me and she said, you know what, I, I do want to pray for healing because even though I'm suffering, even though this looks like the end of my life, even though I'm so close to my reward, I don't know what God has planned for me in the days that are left. And so who am I to decide that I shouldn't be healed? And so we prayed for her, and God didn't heal her miraculously. God didn't heal her in that way. God eventually took her home. But Paul and Kirk, these, these powerful saints in our midst, they understand that their life, even in suffering, has purpose. That it is ultimately God who has numbered our days. And he's known us from before the foundation of the world. None of the things that we're going through are a surprise to him. And he will not waste one minute of your suffering. He will use it all for his glory and for your joy. Kirk was part of a community of life. And in the midst of suffering, in the face of potential despair, because she had the true gospel, because she had the real hope, because she was in the companionship and the community of the church, because she was visited and cared for and affirmed and celebrated, Kirk knew that her life was valued and secure in the sovereignty of the Lord. And there are a lot of people out there, apart from God right now, who don't have that affirmation because there is not a community of life around them. And so what is our Christian response then? Our Christian response is to go out and be that culture of life to those people and bring them hope. This is what dying can be in a gospel-centered community of life. The gospel holds out hope to those in despair. The church as a community of life offers care and companionship and inclusion to those that are dying to show them that there's hope and not futility. That is what the church has to be. That is the Christian response to a culture of death. That is our answer. Let's pray. Father God, again, we've looked in your word. We've searched your heart. We know your care and your compassion for those that are suffering. We know the value and the sanctity that you place on life, that you've known us before the foundation of the world, that you number the hairs on our head, that we are worth far more than two sparrows, but there are so many that are out there terminally ill and dying that do not know that. And so, Father, stir up in us, stir up in us a heart that does not want to marginalize the dying or turn our backs on suffering, that we are... Father, I just keep thinking about this. Like Heroes are the ones that run into the burning building, not out. We need to be the ones that are running to the bedsides, not away. So, Father, stir your people up. Cultivate in us that same compassion that you have, that life is not futile, that there is hope in every day. 
and that there is care and companionship and mercy for those that are suffering. And it flows from you and your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.